Welcome to Intersections. I'm your host, Phil Allen. And once again, uh, I have a very special guest with us today. My friend, Inez Velasquez McBride. Um, she's an incredibly powerful preacher and teacher. I believe she is a prophetic voice for this time. I remember once um, after a class, I asked her, um, do you have any uh, anything recorded of you preaching? <laughs> and she she sent me a, a, a clip, an audio clip. I think I listened to like three minutes of it. <laughs> of the I 20, 25 minutes. And I immediately texted her back and said, I need to have you preaching at Own Your Faith. Uh, we met actually in a, a class at Fuller Seminary, Theology and Ethics of MLK. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we, you know, we met um, and began a friendship. Um, mm-hmm. She's preached at Own Your Faith, the ministry that I uh, founded. Um, Inez is a chaplain, um, one of the chaplains at Fuller Seminary. Um, she does um, just powerful, caring, nurturing work, shepherding students and, and even faculty there. Um, she co-pastors with Bobby Harrison, um, a church they co-founded, the church we hope for um, in the Pasadena, Monrovia area outside of Los Angeles. Like I said, she's a friend, um, she is a wife, and she's a mom. But that's just how I see her. I <laughs> want her to just introduce herself, share more about who she is and what she has going on. Welcome, Inez, to Intersections. Thank you, Phil. It is good to be called your friend, and it is good to be your friend, dear friend. <laughs> so thank you for sharing what you did. Um, I am a mom and a wife and a friend, and I also love saying that I'm a pastora. You know, it took many, many years for me to be able to unpack and even self-name and say I'm a pastora. I am a, a third-generation pastor and the first female pastor in my Nicaraguan family. I am awesome. a preacher. I'm one that is a reconciler. I have a heart for racial reconciliation and have been working for racial reconciliation in and through the local church for the past 20 years. I am Nicaraguan, so I know that the term Latina is important in the U.S., but it does racially lump the rest of us. As you know, uh, nobody is a monolith. No group is a monolith. So within the Latina U.S. narrative, I am Nicaraguan, and that's important because that's that's the land where I was raised. I am an immigrant, so I came here as an older immigrants and I was grafted into the U.S. Latino Latina narrative and had to learn what that was about. I had mm. some catching up to do in this specific soil. So I'm an, an immigrant pastor, preacher, and I love the, the work of reconciliation and, and I have a heart for the local church as well. And I'm glad that we met in the ethics of Martin Luther King class in yeah. Fuller Seminary. It was in the fall of 2016. Yeah, yeah. Fall of 2016, very seems like pivotal yesterday. year. It look, seems like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, you were sitting across across the classroom, and our friends that we have mutual friends, Bobby and Maddie. We were all like, "Oh, we just want to be his friend." <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you open your mouth, we were leaning into whatever oh, Phil had to say. We're like, just wanted to send you a note that said, "Would you be our friend?" <laughs> <laughs> and so we I'm became grateful. friends. I'm grateful for the friendship, yes, awesome. and the partnership and the gospel. As am I. Um, I, I want to get started with, um, I always want to check in on where people are, 
Um, and, you know, as you know, and everyone else knows, we're in this unprecedented, unprecedented times um, with COVID-19, the pandemic, um, the quarantine or the quasi-quarantine, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. racial unrest. You know, in my opinion, the racial unrest is cyclical. It, it's, mm-hmm. you know, annual. Uh, it, it's a mm-hmm. regular part of our um, American um, way of, uh, <laughs> it, it almost seems like it's not complete without a year, throughout the year, without some type of unrest because it happens so Goodness. frequently. Yeah. Um, and I think we should call it out. And I think this should be, um, there should be outrage every time something like that happens. Yeah. Um, how are you doing? How are you processing? Um, as someone who mm-hmm. wears many hats, mm-hmm. um, who's caring for others, but how are you processing it mm-hmm. for yourself? How are you caring for yourself? Um, and then maybe transition into how is it affecting the Latino community? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking that question. And to be honest, transparent, and vulnerable, I am grieving as we all are in very many different ways. But what's different about this grief uh, for all of us is that it is compounded because it's multi-layered. So no matter what color you are, um, it has additional layers and additional layers and additional layers, depending on where you're coming from. It is compounded. Compounded. It is collective because there's not one person that has been that has not been affected. It's a global pandemic, and in my lifetime, I have never experienced something like that. You've seen wars, and you've heard of wars far away, and they kind of sort of affect you. You're aware of them, but never anything that we're we're going through collectively, and it is sustained meaning we don't see an ending to it right now. And that's not normal. Yeah. It is not normal because what it's doing is that that, cr- that grief that I am grieving, that you are grieving, that we're all grieving, if it is unprocessed, it comes out in undesirable ways. And usually you go through a, um, well, not usually, but sometimes you go through trauma that is a one-time event and then you do the work of grief afterwards and you're working through it cyclically, like you say. But this is a sustained trauma caused by this virus, COVID-19 virus, that not only that, it has unpacked additional layers of pre-existing and coexisting pandemics that were there beforehand for your community, for my community, for our communities of color. And so it's not just the crisis, but it is the other pandemics that have become augmented by this. So we are going through this, uh, through this grief and it is tiring, it is lonely, it is dangerous. It is affecting uh, our bodies and our souls and ourselves mentally. So the way that I have to take care of myself is I have to draw, there is no such thing as balance, but there are boundaries. And um, in the work that I've been doing as a chaplain at Fuller Seminary, we, uh, the, the other two chaplains, the three of us happen to, happen to be people of color. And so we are curating these spaces over and over and over since the crisis started to deal with the crisis, to do an examine of what is happening, to process our grief. So we we curate these spaces where we lament and we use the spiritual practice of lament as a spiritual and cultural practice where we sit down and we name the grief and the multi-layered grief because we're housing grief from different sources and we have to learn to cohabitate with grief right now. Yes. You and I have had to do it for a very long time. You just said so earlier, We this is a cyclical thing for us. But right now we have to see grief as a, as a, as a means of grace, as a friend, 
and we have to name the feelings associated with the grief, whether it's grief from unemployment, whether it's grief from a loss of a workplace, whether it's grief from just not being able to see our family members, whether it's grief from actual deaths of COVID and then grief from racial trauma and racial violence. And so we've been doing that work for our community and I have to do it for myself as well, individually. Carving out time, I have a weekly time of lament where I sit and I just say, what am I grieving right now? How am I doing? And sometimes I just let the silence sit with me. Sometimes the tears roll doing the most mundane of things like washing dishes. My sink has become my sanctuary, but I am trying to carve out lament on a weekly basis in order to process grief so that grief doesn't consume me because it can be ever consuming. It could be ever consuming. And so lamentation is also a place of healing um, to, to care for our bodies and our souls. And so I do it for myself. We've do it. We've done it for the, we've done it for the uh, academic community. We've done it for people of color only. We've done it for African-American uh, uh, brothers and sisters only, you know, because everyone has to do their own internal work. There's different things, the way that this has hit us in different ways and gets manifested in different ways. So without lament, I would be consumed. And without changing that framework of like, oh, this heavy thing that I'm feeling, that thing, that heaviness that we constantly feel that's latent under the surface, it's called grief. Mm-hmm. And it is your friend. Yeah. Yeah. And listen to it. Listen to your grief. Lament with your grief. Name the feelings associated because God has access to us right now yeah. through our grief and our feelings. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I, I think, you know, when you were saying you make space for lament as part of a, a discipline, a practice weekly, um, you know, I think some of us may do it um, as it comes up. We don't even realize that we just lament regularly. Yeah. After uh, George Floyd's murder, after seeing the video, which I didn't want to see, but I saw the video, yeah. I, I grieved daily. Yes. I, I, there were moments when I would have to stop and lament. Like I, I, knew, that's, I knew that's what I was doing, um, mm. especially when they said um, he was a 46-year-old former basketball player. Mm, I'm mm-hmm. a former I'm a 46 year old mm-hmm. former basketball player mm-hmm. so it was almost like they were mm-hmm. naming me so I could see even right. more of myself in that um, yeah but I think that this is something that collectively we need yeah. to do yeah, I, in yeah. my book I, I just edited um, final, finalized the, the last editing of my book Open Wounds and mm. there's a section where I talk about lament Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. where it is a gift, it is a and, gift, and where we do need need it, not just individually but collectively, we mm-hmm. need to practice that. But we're so tough. Oh, we're so strong. We've had to be, Phil. Right, but I mean, We've as as a nation, as a nation, we right. we push people to that, oh, but yes. we don't give the space that you're talking about. Right, and right. we need to. You yes. know what I'm saying? And and, and that yes. to me, that is strength. Yes. The courage to actually enter into that space of lament with with being vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. It's scary. So that is actually strength. Yes, it is scary. You know, but we call it weakness. We do. We call it weakness. Uh, My co-pastor, Bobby, Bobby and I led a time of lament uh, right after Ahmad Arbery. And uh, we went through three movements of lament in the one hour of lament. And you, you can't like you can carve out the space for lament and then it looks different on, on what you're doing. But I, I couldn't force myself to cry, but naturally the tears came out because when I thought about Ahmad Arbery, 
I thought of you, Phil, because you are my brother. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw those things and those awful, and I, and I made myself watch the video as well, I, you're a runner <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you're athletic, you're moving. And I immediately thought of, of Phil with the same intensity and protectiveness of, of a sister, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that it could have been you, like that, if I, if I sit with that for a minute, I have tears in my eyes right now. Mm -hmm. And so to, to have proximity to you and to, to love you as a brother and respect you as my brother, when this happens to the community, I feel it very deeply with, with groanings that I cannot even explain. And in that time of lament, when I was crying, it, I wasn't just crying for Ahmad, I was crying for you and anybody else, yeah. right? Um, and we, we need the gift of being able to express that. Yeah. express that lament you know you, you said something i think is important too um i mean i i i imagine you're going to say dozens of things that are, that are, that's <laughs> profound today that i'm going to piggyback yeah. on or want to unpack some more but you said you could see me in ahmad arbery yeah and it's interesting because obviously i could see myself you mentioned me being a runner and sure. now i find myself wanting to run where is a, a is crowded i can imagine where it's people Yes, I, I'm. I'm. I'm more uncomfortable running, um, right. in spaces where it's just me, maybe a couple of people, especially women. Yeah. Particularly white women, yeah. if it's just right. me and a few, no, I don't feel as comfortable. Right. I want right. to be, but it, but the fact that I have to think about that, I want to be out in a space where there's a bunch of people and there's witnesses. I got to think about that to go running, yes. which I use yes. for self care and de stressing. There you go. But. You said you could see me in Ahmad. Yeah. And I don't think that we allow ourselves to be able to see ourselves or those yeah. close to us in the people who are on these videos, who are dying, who are being killed, unarmed, black yeah. folks. I don't think, even if we get to, if we go back to looking at those kids on the border, those um, immigrants yeah. coming in, can we see yeah. our kids there? Can we right. see our neighbors' kids there? Most of my ministry, you know this, yeah. I would say is Latino, yeah. Latinx. Mm -hmm. Most of, most, that, that's, probably, that's probably the largest group. Mm -hmm. Their kids, I'm like Uncle Phil. Yes, yes, they love you. <laughs> so I can see the ones I love in those, in those, those cages. Mm. Amen. But Amen. we we distance ourselves yeah. by not allowing ourselves to see. I just had a debate, yeah. which I don't like getting into into to debates on social media. Last night and this morning, uh, with the old classmate of mine, um, that I thought he was very disrespectful and had racist tendencies coming out. Mm. And I, you know, went back and forth a little bit, and then you know, he got off, and I guess I, I got off afterwards. But mm. he, he can't see himself. Right. And George Floyd, Jacob yeah. Blake, Ahmaud Arbery. Yeah. He can't yeah. see his wife and Breonna Taylor. Right. You know, right. the pandemic, the, 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 the virus has is no respecter of person. No. But black and brown communities are affected more and more. And yes. this is where we see how racism plays out and it doesn't need a person to execute. That's right. The data tells us. The data tells us. So talk to us a little bit about how the Latino community, Latinx community is 
navigating this reality that they're having to work. Many mm -hmm. have to ha still have to go to work, exposing mm -hmm. themselves, dying at higher rates. Yeah. Um, how, how, how are you all navigating that? How are you as a chaplain, as a yeah. mom, yeah. Um, navigate, thinking about that? processing let's start with the with the data uh so that we can have something to to talk about uh, the this is centers for disease control and prevention mm -hmm. in the u.s census census bureau from may 28th so the new york times um had to extract this information from the cdc it, but it's it's a it's a um a graph that shows the racial inequity of coronavirus and so it says in coronavirus cases per 10,000 people 73% are Latino, 62% are Black, 23% are white, and 38% are all. This is from May. Can you imagine how much more yeah. if we had a more accurate, but this one specifically is tracking that racial inequity. And so I imagine, and I can surmise being, having worked with the Latino community for the past 20 years in, in the South, in Arkansas, having worked as a medical interpreter uh, in a children's hospital, giving access to linguistic access to medical services um, for, for immigrants, Latino immigrants in Arkansas and same here in California, observing the tendencies here. We just know that our Latino sisters and brothers could have less access to healthcare and mm -hmm. could have, you know, could be the essential workers that are going to um, harvest the salad on our plates today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So we, we like to eat. And so we, we still have family members and kin that is going to harvest the tomatoes and the grapes and, and the almonds and whatever else we have on our, on our, in our pantry or in our fridge. And so just that right there, who are the essential workers? And so these data tell us a story, tell us a systemic injustice type mm -hmm. of story. And it is old. Um, it's an old rhyme. Mm -hmm. It's an old rhyme of systemic oppression. And I saw it, especially the eight years that I worked with the Latino community in Arkansas as a medical interpreter, help them, helping them find access to the services that were there for them that they did not even know that were there because maybe of linguistic barriers. And so we, we, we see that, we know that it's been here. I've been in the midst of that inequality in the medical sphere at least. And so I know that my people continue to be in many different sectors of society um, to be uh, to be left behind and inequalities are affecting them at higher rates and same for, for black communities. Um, so it's, the problem is so large that one person does not have the key or the yeah. answer. Yeah. Like there's not one key there. It's, it's layered and multi-layered and, and you and I know this and so. Can you share some of those keys? Can you share um, things that you think need to happen um, to, I mean, I think we, we may agree on, on some, some, but do you have any insight that you would want to share? Like these are some things that need to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, policies that affect people okay. is the first thing that we need to become aware of in, 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 in Every context, the, the policy will be different. So when I was in Arkansas working in the medical community, working with children, I worked at a, at a private hospital that actually had a no child left behind kind of, kind of uh, 
um, philosophy. And so whether you were documented or not documented or undocumented, uh, children who came to their doors were not going to be turned away. So it's important to know who is left out of those medical policies, who has access to, to health care. And if someone comes in with a heart condition, that's life or death, will they be turned away? Yeah. And so every, every context will change. When I came to California four years ago, we are super close to the border, right? And so the closer you get and the more proximal you are to cer certain kinds of injustices, then we need to find out the history of those injustices in the land. So study the history of the land and find the policies that affect the people of that land, find the original inhabitants of that land, yep. and then see the history of more and more and more inhabitants of that land. So when I came to California, I had to, to educate myself more on what's happening at the border. Being in Arkansas, you were really far from the border, but being close to here, we have no excuse to know what's happening at the border. And uh, whenever more and more video and knowledge was, was, was being shown by the media about kids in cages, I was horrified. I was horrified as a mother. I was horrified as an immigrant. I was horrified as a, um, as a Latina, also because I knew the violence that was drawing my sisters and brothers and children and women especially to desperately come to the U.S.-Mexico border because I lived in that violence. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I came here as an older immigrant at 18 years old. I lived in that violence. I survived a civil war. I had a mother and I saw AK-45s uh, uh, um, aimed at her head, you know, uh, because we were held at a hostage overnight one night and I and my little brother saw you know my, my my mother with those guns to her head I saw that violence from our countries and I can understand and remember it in yeah. my own body the trauma yeah. that I carry yeah. and you have been doing I know work on trauma and wounds I still have it in my body all I have to do is for one second imagine that night and imagine those men yeah and those revolutionaries, right, aiming that gun at my mother and saying, read this letter, don't look up, we want $10,000. If you look up while you're reading this letter, we will kill your children. I know the violence that these women and men are escaping, coming and rushing to the borders. And I am appalled yeah. at the types of policies that have not only like actively done things to, to persuade them to leave and forcibly push them to leave, and then on top of that, these detention centers that are really concentration camps that are historically old, they have happened before. If we you know, look at the history of Japanese American concentration camps in California alone, and then children being ripped from their mothers. It is just violence upon violence upon violence. And it's too much, too much for my mind, too much for my heart, um, too much because it triggers past trauma. Mm -hmm. And it continues to add to the trauma of our communities. And those are just two, two small places, uh, just to show of those, those inequities. So we must find out the history of the land. We must find out how policies have affected people. We must find out who has been seen as subhuman. We must see who doesn't have access to services. We must understand how many languages are in LA to understand then, to begin to understand policies that affect people. And then I see it in the church as well, but um, the church has perpetuated, as you and I know, perpetuated the evidence of systemic racism, perpetuated it and protected it yep. Yep. and has been complicit in it. And Absolutely. so that's where I find myself in that tension again, also that as a pastor, 
I have find that tension with my faith as a faith leader of speaking up about that also in the realm of church. So not just the different public sectors, medical sectors, government sectors, but also the church as a sector. Yeah. You know, you talk about leaving these countries, leaving the violence only to come here and meet violence. Oh, um, the violence of words, the mm. violence of policies, um, the violence of even theology. Yes. Right. And yes. it seems like, you know, we, we keep I, I've always said um, we, we 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 say we're a Christian nation, um, but we don't the people who say that they don't want to talk about the complicity complicity you speak of of Christianity right. and these horrors, these injustices, especially along racial lines. Um, but this violence that we talk about that they meet is cheered and led by the most Christian circles. Most Christian circles. You know? Um, and I think that's the thing that's, that's the most heartbreaking. Like, the church can look at those coming to the border, mm -hmm. escaping violence, and yes, I, I'm sure that there are some who are exploiting. exploiting. Of that's, sure. that's in anything. Anywhere. But they're looking with condemning eyes rather than concerning eyes. Right. Concerning eyes will, will, will go back mm. to the history of the land. Say that. Concerning eyes want to know right. where they're escaping from. Yes, and what they're escaping. Yes. That's what concerning eyes do. Condemning yeah. eyes um, is looking to protect what you have. Right. 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 If I can condemn right. them, if I could find uh, a, a reason to uh, accuse, to to label them, then they don't have a right here. I have a I have right. a right to reject and, and thus protecting what I have here. Yes. Uh, so there's some idolatry mixed in there as well. Um, man, that that's the violence of theology. And that's where it begins, Phil. I think you were mm -hmm. right on point when you said that, because uh, two border crossings have happened here. Uh, those who have lost the compassion of Christ cross the border from the U.S. to Nicaragua many times on missionary journeys. Since I was 11 years old, I was an interpreter for medical doctors and nurses and preachers and pastors who came to my country to bring help. And they loved taking pictures with me, right, to bring back to their yes. home country here and show that they've done this good thing. Yeah. And so then I crossed the border to come here come to the north and I find a different missionary. All of a, you know, all of a sudden that same, those same people, and I know some of them because I see their postings on Facebook, those same people wow. that came to my country mm -hmm. supposedly to bring me Christ, mm -hmm. have the most unchrist-like yep. attitude. They're willing to cross the border to come to Nicaragua, but they're unwilling to cross the railroad tracks yep. and they're unwilling to cross and have compassion for those who are coming, escaping from something and rather than embracing them the way we embrace them, yep. when they came to my country, we opened our arms and our homes and our lives and our hearts and our pulpits. I was always preaching, uh, translating for a white preacher, yeah. Phil. Always. We open up our lives. But when I came and my people came, their hearts are not open. Their arms are not embraced. In fact, the violence of separation yep. happens, as we have seen with, with the children, and, and rape that is happening being documented in detention centers, in ICE detention centers as well. That's the opposite yep. of the compassion of Christ. It's it's not even, it can't even compare. It's it's a kingdom that has departed from the ethics of its king. Mm, say that again, say it again. 
it's the kingdom that has departed from the ethics of that king. We Absolutely. have forgotten who is king. Yeah. We have forgotten who is king. Yeah. We're bowing down to idols. Have 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 they forgotten or have they never embraced? Maybe they're never fully embraced. They because never fully embraced. I believe the Jesus in scripture not in every circle, not in every space. But it's not necessarily the Jesus that has been tried to, they've tried to wrap the American flag around. Right. So they've shaped and formed a, a, a completely different Jesus. Different so Jesus. the Jesus you speak of, the compassion you speak of would be foreign. Right. Right? Right. The embrace right. is a foreign ethic. Yes. Yes. Rather than the re the familiarity of rejection, right? Because crossing the border to go to that land, mm -hmm. there's a sense of entitlement there, right? You know, Western or American Christianity has this this entitlement that we're supposed to go, yes, to save those savages. to save every yeah to save everyone, right? You know, right? So it it, it makes sense for you to embrace and welcome them when they come it doesn't make sense it's foreign mm -hmm. for us for for them because i'm not uh, um, putting myself in that category right to embrace to do the same thing when you come yes to now serve you yes that's yes. foreign that is foreign. without the without serving without Mm. taking off that robe and putting that towel yeah. around your waist and getting Say to that. your knees and, and washing the feet and becoming a servant without that. Right. How unchristlike can you be with all that said, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and continue the conversation. You are listening to intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film, Open Wounds. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost. The story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen, my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sampit River, at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain, since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the Low Country, home of the Gullah-speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth. And the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Man, um, you, you, you shared a lot. Um, talk, continue a, a little bit more about your experience personally with racism, whether it's in the church or outside the church, 
you know, this, 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 this podcast is called Intersections. And mm -hmm. so with you, you are um, a Latin woman who mm -hmm. wears many hats. Hats mm -hmm. that, uh, according to many, you shouldn't be wearing. <laughs> right? Yes. And we've had this conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, before. So if you don't mind sharing about your personal experience with racism, particularly as um, a woman um, pastor. Yes. My experience with racism, of course, begins with those interactions with predominantly white missionaries that came to Nicaragua. But there was an especial, especially an insidious way that it came out when uh, I first started church planting and be, being called to the ministry. And the soil is important. You know, the soil is very important because it has a history, right? The history of the land of Arkansas, where I moved when I was uh, 23 years old to help plant a multi-ethnic church in a, in a, in a land that, had, that has a strong black-white binary that has, had a new um, wave of immigration of, from the South, Latino immigration, Latinx immigration, into that new state. It was a new destination state. That's where I started feeling the pressure and the weight of what I, I'm going to call it's demonic. You know, the, the twin demons of racism and sexism started coming up at the, in, the, in that land. When I studied the history of Arkansas, when I studied that it was a lynching state, when I studied that one ought to not go through Harrison, Arkansas, they were just in the news recently, right? So when I studied uh, the history of the Little Rock Nine and Central High and the integration of Central High, when I met the, the real Little Rock Nine um, and, and learned those stories, and then I intersected my story. I was, like I said, I was grafted in the U.S. Hispanic narrative, and then I saw how the immigrant community in Arkansas was being excluded and they did not have good access to to services, that's when I saw the twin demons of the intersection of racism and, and, and sexism. Uh, twin demons, I say, because uh, let's talk about the multi-ethnic church movement and, and the work of racial reconciliation. Multi-ethnic church movement has not lived up to all that it should have been. You know, we can talk about race and uh, not slay the demon of patriarchy. And that often has happened to me in those places of intersections. I always uh, like to say that sexism is older than racism and that all oppressive systems that abused power have been built on the back of women, mm. especially women of color. And that is the curse of Genesis 3 of male supremacy. And that added on to that, we get the layers then in Genesis 4, we get the murder and the lynching of a brother. Right. And so we just keep adding and adding and adding to the curse and the consequences of the curse. And so a system that subjugates and suppresses and silences women is justified by what happened in Genesis three and justified by order of, of creation. And in my experience to address race without gender yeah. is inadequate. Yeah. It's yeah. inadequate. It's, it's like a baby having a double ear infection. And then you put an antibiotic drops on one ear and you hope that the other ear gets better. <laughs> Not knowing that inside, it's built. It is. It's all built together. Yeah. I mean, look at look at the statistics again of indigenous women who have disappeared from uh, Native American reservations. Look at the femicide that is happening in Argentina, Afghanistan, and Turkey, yes. and Honduras. Uh, read w when I read Frederick Douglass's journals of of how um, his aunt got whipped. 
and and the very descriptive ways that he talked about how how uh, uh, female enslaved enslaved sisters were whipped with more aggression. Yeah. Um, it shows you that twin demon of inner intersectionality that we if we don't address it is inadequate in this conversation that the excessive force with which he saw his aunt being whipped that the excessive force by which these my my black enslaved sisters were castigated by church going slave masters yeah and that's the who part. would not not whip on a sunday but then come with a vengeance on monday yeah we have to talk about that intersectionality yeah. because um, of how connected that infection is. Which means, and I, I've said this before, we actually have to dismantle, we talk about dismantling structures, dismantling um, systems and things like that, but mm -hmm. we have to dismantle the, the, the theologies, education, ideologies. So the whole way we talk about U.S. history Yes. The entire way that we've presented Christianity from a, a U.S. perspective, the history of Christianity on, on this soil yeah. has to be taken down. Yeah. Like not bits Absolutely. and pieces and added on to like the foundation of it right. needs to be up, uprooted. Yes. Right. Right. Because right. you never hear this. You never hear this side of Christianity. That's why many people right. think um, America is such, has always been such a Christian nation, good, right. benevolent, what have you. But they right. never, you got to reconcile the two. Right. You got to reconcile it with that side that you just described. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, we don't, and, and, and as well as um, I recently read an article that talked about um, women in um, human trafficking. Mm. Uh, a disproportionate amount of them are women of color. Yeah. Um, I, I need to follow up even more on that. But, yeah. but, you know, you're right. You cannot talk about one without the other. Yeah. Um, unless you're unless you're just talking specifically in that moment about men, right? Exactly. Right. But you exactly. can't talk about us. Yes. And leave one out. Yes. Because yes. you're at that intersection. Yes. And you don't yes. have an intersection unless you have both. Right. Right. And those same sisters are the ones also who will help all of us become liberated. Yes. In our ethics of Martin Luther King class was the first time that I read the book. It was part of our homework, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott. Yes. For me to find out the names and the bodies yes. of my brilliant black sisters that took nine years yep. to organize yep. for the boycott. Like it didn't happen overnight. Yep. Dr. King, God bless him and rest in power, didn't just yep. raise up one day and say, yep. Oh, I think today we're gonna boycott the, no. the 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 bus transportation system, but the sisters behind him and before him that for nine years carefully calculated and were ready for whenever the time came. I just remember reading that they, they were saying, we don't know when this will be, but whenever the right time comes, yep. they were ready for it. Yep. So the systems of oppression are oppressing them, but they're also creating systems of liberation. Yep. Yep. So we have to follow our black sisters. Yep. We have to follow our Latina sisters. They will be part also of Absolutely. our liberation when we need them. And you know this, you know this, I'm talking to the choir. Abs right Absolutely. <laughs> Why Arkansas? Goodness. I, think <laughs> I, I always, I don't know if I ever asked you that Arkansas? question, but I've always wanted to ask question. you that question. How did you end I, up there? I think Arkansas picked me. <laughs> I was going to undergrad in Texas and I had a friend who knew this pastor that was planting this church in Arkansas. And he said, you gotta be my pastor. You gotta be my pastor. He's starting this like 
multiracial church in, in Arkansas. I didn't even know where Arkansas was. <laughs> and, and, you know, the immigration is growing there and they need someone like you. They need, and so I traveled to Arkansas, met, I think you have met before or heard Mark DeMoss speak before. Yeah, yeah. And I met with him and after two hours sitting with him, I just shared my testimony with him. After two hours, he said, I want you to come here. Oh, hire, that makes like, sense. Almost like hired me on the spot. And I said, what? Like, there was nothing. There was no building. There was no, but there was a vision of what would it look like for the kingdom of heaven to be, to come here on earth and to break down those boundaries and yeah. that the church has been complicit. And so I was really drawn by that kingdom vision and what it would look like in a place like Arkansas. So I moved there not knowing, not knowing anybody um, and helped plant that church from the ground up, toiling that soil yeah. and and learning about that land. But now, I don't think I would have picked it. I think it picked me. <laughs> now, you uh, that wasn't the last church you were a part of Correct. in Arkansas. Uh, if you feel comfortable sharing, because mm -hmm. um, you know we've talked, talked about this, um, share some of what you can share, what you feel comfortable sharing of your mm -hmm. experience with um, at the, the, the church that you left um, mm -hmm. I think there's some things that people can glean from um, what you what you went through. It's very important. Thank you for asking that question with such courtesy. And um, the the first seven and a half years, I was at Mosaic, helping plant that church, helping it become an inclusive community, a multi ethnic community, welcoming the immigrant community. And it was black, brown, white, and about thirty different nations represented. A beautiful community. And then after that, um, I've sensed a change in direction and I left Mosaic and I started working at the hospital. But my husband's church, where he had grown up since junior high, my husband's church had been a predominantly white church that wanted to make the transformation from predominantly white to multi-ethnic. And uh, they hired their first African-American pastor and um, we started going there. And then eventually I was the first Latina that got hired there. That Those two are the experiences that I bring when it comes to a local church, a church that we helped plant from the ground up to be multi-ethnic and then a church that needed to be transformed. And like you said, that needed a restructuring of power from the beginning. Ask me which one was the harder church. Which one was Ask the harder church? <laughs> the predominantly white church. Yeah. The predominantly white church that wanted it to look like we were diverse and wanted proximity to people of color in the pew, but did not want proximity to the pain of people of color outside of the pew. And I found that out very quickly, right? That I looked really good <laughs> for a brochure. But as I immersed myself, I mean, I, I, I went there not with, not with naive heart or mind or eyes, but I went hopeful. I went hopeful that this church truly wanted to change and that they wanted to become multiracial and multi-ethnic, but then you start seeing the systemic come up. You know, I was hired as a, uh, never said this out loud. Um, I was hired uh, and, and I asked, well, what's my name? What's my title going to be? And, and the person that told me said woman's pastor. And I said, oh, awesome. I'm excited to be going back into ministry. And then, you know, I was, as I was being hired and filling out paperwork, I get another call and they said, oh, wait, uh, the elders, don't think that women can be pastors. And so you, your name, your title has changed from women's pastor to women's director. 
And at that time, I didn't know because I was hopeful, Phil. I just thought they just need to get to know me. They just need to see my witness. And I said, <laughs> I remember saying, I don't care what you call me. You can call me the maid in this church. I'm still going to serve and pastor and wash feet. And I was hopeful that I could help bring that change. Yeah. But what I found out in those seven and a half years that I was there and something that my, my spiritual mentor uh, that you know, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, helped me see is that I was helping to be complicit in my own oppression. Yep. And after yep. a while, these systems that, that need to be restructured completely and some things burned to the ground, they're just not gonna welcome the fullness of who I was. So they wanted some, but not all. And the sexism there was actually in the patriarchy was more aggressive against me. But racism is always sexualized, right? And sexism is always racialized. So sometimes it was diminishing my voice. Sometimes, you know, I couldn't preach from up front. I had to be authorized by elders. And, and, and I thought they just need to hear me preach one time. And as soon as they hear me preach, they're just going to change their minds. You were I mean, so just optimistic. like Phil. Phil, you, I was so optimistic. I mean, I sent you that, I sent you that video of, of me preaching after five minutes. I hadn't even left campus when I was getting a phone call. Exactly. From you. Exactly. Come preach at my church. Well, that didn't happen, Phil, at this church. What, what because, were you thinking? What were you thinking when you, when I asked you for that? Did you think sim something similar would happen with me that happened at your church or? I, I, I wondered, I always know that a hermeneutic of suspicion is how I'm perceived. Okay. Whether it's by males or, uh, or, or white, white people, um, wondering, you know, do I need to get vetted? Wondering, do, you know, will, will she have, what is she going to say? Yeah. Because it was at this church and it was the election in 2016 that my sermons became more offensive. Yeah. In this, in this church. So right? you started sounding, you started sounding more like Jesus, huh? That's right. You start talking about the Jesus and the justice of Jesus and the Jesus shaped justice. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm a liberal. All of a sudden, that's social justice. All, that's yeah. not the gospel. Just preach Jesus, you know. Um, and I remember, and I know you're going to interview Bobby as well, but the second time that I was invited there to preach, um, I was invited with conditions. And so, you know, you, you just never know. Invited with conditions. I, I couldn't say that I was going to preach. I was going to teach. Because women pr don't preach, they, they they teach. I couldn't talk about social justice, and that was the summer that all the thing at the border happened, and I was like, I cannot not talk about this, and just preach the gospel. So it's such an anemic gospel, yeah, yeah such an yeah. anemic gospel that they have an idea of, yeah. right? Which we were just talking about the violence of that anemic theology, and so the more we became outspoken, because everything changed after the 2016 ele election, the more I became outspoken the more and more my voice was limited, restricted, silenced, dehumanized. Um, and it was very, a very painful, very aggressive departure from that church. Um, it's the church that sent me to seminary, but it's not the church that would have been willing to hire me back. Wow. And I don't know which one offended them more, the fact that I was a woman or the fact that I was brown. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Probably both. Probably both. They, they probably, probably amplify both. each other. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, you talk about I, I I'm well. Let me let me back up a little a little bit. First of all, I do operate from a hermeneutic of suspicion <laughs> when I don't know the person. Yes, 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 yes. So that's the only thing I, I just wanted to know: Can she preach? Right. That's it. I do that with anybody. 
Right. Like I need to hear something because when I put you on that platform, I want to be able to say, I've heard yeah. this. I know yes. this person. The I know they're, but even more so than that is the integrity. Right. Right. That, that matters right. more to me than your gift. It's the integrity and the character of the person. Mm -hmm. So that, that and you're protecting your people too. Yes. It's yes. It's not going to put anyone that could say something that would be outside of the gospel. Exactly. Hurt. Mm -hmm. But, but back to the multi-ethnic church, cause I have a, I operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion with them. Um, yeah. I, 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 right. I served in that capacity, this, uh, white, but multi-ethnic church, white in right. culture, multi-ethnic, yes. um, but yes. not multicultural. Right. I, I struggle with that because you can, you can treat diversity and multi-ethnicity as a type of cosmetic yeah. to beautify, to try to make that violent theology yeah. look a little cuter mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Look and, cuter. and become acceptable. Because mm -hmm. you know how when, when the aesthetics are right, we can accept yeah. Yeah. things. We yeah. can tolerate things. Yes. And I've, I've always said, um, it is not multicultural until there are multicultural expressions of worship. Yes. And multicultural voices at the table of decision making. At the highest levels of leadership. Yes. That's right. Diversity can't just have a face. It must have a voice too. Yeah. Um, in my ministry, you know, I start from the top. Equal women, diversity yes. from the top, not from mm -hmm. the bottom up. Right. That's comfortable. Yeah top down is is where you yeah. where where it should should land um and the reason why it was so hard i think is because they were trying to build on the same foundation that's right you cannot build something new on the same foundation you cannot you know you, you have to uh, unless that foundation is flexible yeah and i'm just kind of rambling right now but unless that foundation is compatible with the new thing you have to go down and break it down to the, to the foundation. Right. right. Um, you're trying to build right. uh, this new vision on old racist theology. Yes. And it's just not going to work. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, mm. Most often racism is talked about through the lens of the black, white binary. Mm hmm. And that's why I think your your voice is so important, because um, you're not gonna you're not gonna bring the Latino the, Latin, the Latinx narrative you're not gonna bring it into bring it to the table whispering. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're, you're you're coming. You know me so well, Phil. <laughs> you're coming, <laughs> right? And rightfully so. So that's why I think your voice is so important. Um, but when we talk so much about anti-black racism, and I do, I I, I because that's mm -hmm. my experience, so that's where I'm starting from. Now, I hope mm -hmm. to evolve and grow to where I'm speaking more to other narratives. But right now, mm -hmm. I'm still trying to unpack anti-black racism and, and right. the, the long history of that in this country, um, yeah. even up to today. But the Latino, the Latinx narrative can get lost. Um, mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. what ways are they the same, the black and brown narrative? Mm -hmm. What ways are they distinct? Um, what would you want to bring to that table and say, hey, wait a minute. Here's what's going on over here, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The rhyme is the same okay. of all oppression. 
because uh, racism and sexism re really at the root has nothing to do with, with, with race, which we know is a social construct or gender, but it's, it's a misuse and abuse of power. So at the root of any ism is the misuse of power and who is grasping for power. It's antithetical to the gospel that is a generous gospel to, to have an idea of a shalom. Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier, a phenomenal uh, Latina theologian, mm -hmm. talks about that hospitality of shalom where, where we're not grasping and taking and dominating. It's that theology of domination, that demon of domination from Genesis 3. And so if, if that supremacy is in that foundation and if that supremacy and that abuse of power is there, the rhyme is going to sound the same but it's gonna have different melodies and different manifestations. Okay. The rhyme that. is the same. And so I've had to learn as I look at my African-American sisters and brothers, and this happened more in Arkansas, in that land, studying how it was a lynching state, studying about Little Rock Nine, studying um, these parallel systems of oppression. When you look really carefully, you go, oh my gosh, this sounds the same. It's manifested differently. Mm -hmm. And so, then you are able to have with the compassion of Christ to say this rhyme of oppression has been going on for generations. It has been happening to the black Nicaraguans in the East coast of Nicaragua who were brought to our coasts from Africa mm -hmm. in slave ships. So you got to pay attention mm -hmm. that we have black Nicaraguans as well, who have been prejudiced against simply by the color of their skin and because of the fact that they come from with African ancestry yeah. and they have five different languages that they speak in the East coast of Nicaragua. We are not a monolith, we're not just all brown. So we have our own messes in our countries of anti-black um, uh, racism within the Latinx community. Wow. And then on top of that though, we come here to this country and I see, I must see you Phil as my brother. And when I recognize that the rhyme of the oppression is the same, but it has a different um, aggression or external aggression, then I must stand in what I know you like to call racial solidarity. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I, I found language through you, through something that I've seen before, but I hadn't said it before. Mm -hmm. That racial solidarity that I know that if you are my kin, if you are familia, if I use that, that framework, then what happens to you happens to me. Yes, yes. And so... What the enemy has done is that it has pitted us against each other. And I know that you have heard Dr. Love Secrets talk about this when we were at Fuller. I, it, I, it was striking to me because we were having a, a, a difficult argument in a classroom one day, not with her, but just all of us talking about different oppressions. And she said, this is not oppression Olympics. Yeah. This is not oppression Olympics. Learn to recognize the rhyme of the oppression, right? They're not moral equivalents, but, but stand by. And that's where your racial solidarity term has come in to help me to, to imagine me placing my body in front of you or saying, you're going to have to get through me to get to this brother. Exactly. Right? And then how do we do that with each other? Because the enemy wants us to pit us against each other. This, the, its own, the own system of whiteness wants you and I to go, there's going to be less for me. Yeah. It's like a little whisper in the ear, yeah. like a Lord of the Rings kind of whisper. Yeah. There's going to be less pie for you. Yeah. No. Yeah. When the generosity and the radical hospitality of the kingdom in the book of Acts is we have a border crossing God and a boundary breaking spirit where Absolutely. there's enough for everybody. Mm. We come in thinking there's crumbs that we have to fight for when there's a feast that our father has set at the table. Yes. And so we need to know that we're familia, number one. Number two, there's a feast. We are familia and there's a feast. 
This is not oppression Olympics. Of course, there are not moral equivalents to different types of oppression, but deep inside, the rhyme is the same. The lie behind every injustice, no matter what color or people group, the lie that justifies the injustice is that some bodies are worth less than others. Mm. And yours and mine are thrown in there, in the mix. Mm. First, probably. The lie behind, that's the rhyme. The lie in the rhyme behind every injustice is that some bodies are worth less than others. Mm-hmm. And we are subhuman. That's the lie. It's the three-fifths clause. So you, you, pay, you study that. And you see the different manifestations in our indigenous communities, in our anti-Asian American um, sentiment, in the anti-immigrant sentiment, and anti-refugee uh, sentiment. You know that rhyme, and you learn to recognize it. Yeah. And you say, "Not on my watch," because you are familia. Yeah. And not on my watch because there's a feast at the table. So then, how do we come alongside each other when it's when it's my turn to show up at, at the march, at the Black Lives Matter march? Right. I show mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. fully as myself. And I know that you would show up. Mm-hmm. If I, I know right now, if I said, Phil, we're going to the border mañana, tomorrow, I know you're coming with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then knowing the timing of when to, when to, when to show up for our siblings, but without proximity and friendships that we know what the rhyme sounds like, it's just going to be a thing on the news. Yeah. It's, yeah. we can tune it off. We can turn it off. I, I like that. Um, the same rhyme. Uh, which means it's the same rhyme deep inside. in order to recognize that it's the same rhyme, you have to broaden your exposure to the poetry, mm, the poetry right. of others. Um, I may not, I may, I may be accustomed to iambic pentameter, mm. but you may be mm. free. Your, your rhyme may be a little more free verse. Mm-hmm. It's like samba. Yeah. And if I only expose Salsa. myself to what I'm familiar with, my iambic pentameter. Right. And I'm not. Right appreciative of your free verse right i won't see the correlation yeah that's right right that's right Um, so playing on that 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 idea of of the Mm -hmm. same rhyme um we have to read poetry we have to be willing to expose ourselves to the poetry of other people's lives right yes which is it has a certain sound yes and with poetry there is beauty and tragedy Mm, yes say that Right. And so that, that's that's the that's the what's so amazing about poetry is you can you can yeah. you can bring the two together. Yeah. And, and, and you can have this um, this sound. Yes. This this chorus, yes. this rhythm yes. in both. But I can't just I can't just ask you to bring your beauty. Mm. I got to be willing to stand mm. with you in your tragedy. Amen. You Thank see what I'm saying? You. And vice versa. Thank you. Right. Um, Thank you for sharing that. This this is this is so good, man. I you know mm-hmm. you've mentioned <laughs> several times um, you and Bobby with the church we hope for. I wanna I wanna before we go, I wanna I want you mm. to talk a little bit more about the church we hope for. Um, mm. Tell us how it got started. What made you mm-hmm. want you guys want to get together to do that? And then what's the vision? Where where mm-hmm. are you headed? If I'm looking for a church, mm-hmm. which I will be soon. Yeah. <laughs> I got <laughs> where, 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 why, why would we want to be in that community? Yes. What, what is what is what yes. is it about the church we hope for that, mm. um, that God is doing? Mm. Thank you, Phil, for asking that question. The church we hope for in its most simplest form started with a friendship, started with a friendship because 
uh, my brother, and so he's not here, you can't see him, but I'll, I'll paint him for you, happens to be a white male, white educated male from the South, yeah. from the Southern United States. And uh, my brother, who is my brother from another mother, in Spanish you say, he's my hermano de leche. He's my milk brother. Um, he uh, was on staff at this church, at this predominantly white church. And uh, I was on staff there as well. And our friendship came first, which, which grew into a gospel partnership. Because as he and his wife, Amy, as Amy and Bobby and Amy and I are really good friends first. In fact, we were friends first. We always have to remind Bobby that we were friends <laughs> first in a Bible study as Amy and I got to know each other's stories, as Bobby and I got to know each other's stories, as we had proximity to yep. people that didn't look like me, that like, like the other, then we found proximity to the pain. And so my brother became advocating for me at the, in the church context mm -hmm. and in leadership structures, structures that were cemented in whiteness. Mm -hmm. okay? And so it, it was in that struggle in a brother saying, Hey, I want Enos to come preach to my youth. Hey, I want Enos to come preach to the young adults. Then he left for seminary. And when he was here sitting in Dr. Love Seacrest's class, sitting in at the feet of other brilliant theologians, female theologians at Fuller, he started texting me annoyingly so, saying, you got to leave that place. Wow. We didn't have language for that back then. Yeah. We didn't have language to say, you're, it's, you're being complicit in your own oppression. Yeah. You're just trying to change the world, but, but you're in this corner and you're directing women. You can't pastor them. God forbid you pastor them. Yeah. And so he was saying that place is, is shrinking you and it's making you small and it's making you to dumb yourself down. You've got to leave here. You should come here to Fuller because this is a place where you can see, you, you need to be rubbing shoulders with a love secret. You need to be rubbing shoulders to see who you really could be. And so I was like, I am not fixing to do that. Can you see how I lived in the South 15 years? I am not fixing to do that. I know yeah. how to use the word fixing to in a sentence. Yeah, yeah. But my husband and I came, he kind of tricked me and said, oh, why don't you come preach at my church? And then he was like, why don't you just come to one of my classes? Just, just come to one of my classes on campus. And before I left campus, I thought, oh my gosh, what would it look like? Bobby asked me, what would it look like for you to run as fast as you can? And as far as you can, without anything holding me back, without fear holding me back, without whiteness and white structures holding me back. I did not even know the power of my voice or the reach of my voice because I was shrinking and dumbing myself down and becoming docile because that's what whiteness does to you. Yeah, yeah. And so Bobby and Amy came here and then uh, Rob and I, our son Nash came here and the rest is history. And it was in that struggle and uh, Bobby went back to, to, uh, to that church. Um, and as he just wanted to extend a really kind invitation for me to preach, we found out more manifestations of racism and sexism that would have kept me from being fully myself. And so even when he went back and he passed her there, and I don't want to tell his story, but just for the chronological sequence of events, he went back for a couple of years. And he realized that that soil was too hardened it wouldn't change. Yeah. Earlier, you said something about if it was maybe malleable. Yeah. If, if if a foundation is malleable, it wouldn't even. It didn't even want to change. Yeah. Racism and sexism was so strong, it didn't want to change. Yeah. And so uh, God had been speaking to us separately, individually, as families with our spouses and together. And for the past five years, I just knew Bobby and I were going to serve in ministry together we just did not know when and god led us to here to southern california where we believe it's a little more fertile soil where even though phil i have been a pastor for 20 years i haven't been to the highest level of leadership mm. i've never been on an elder board 
That's what sexism does. That's mm -hmm. what racism does. Even though I have 20 years of, of being a, a pastor in my life, I, I've never been in an elder board because that's what it does. And so Bobby and I envision to, to plant a church, a church that we're hoping for. We're hoping that it will have the ethics of the kingdom. We're hoping that it will have the heart of Christ, the compassion of Christ. We're hoping that it will have a heart for justice and an honest paradigm and robust paradigm for reconciliation. We're hoping that it will be a place where I won't have to say that we're for women. I'm just going to be a woman that preaches. Yeah. We're not yeah. going to have to say that we're doing works of justice. We're just going to be doing this, the works of justice, and that will speak for itself. So we're trying to reimagine because the places where we've been before have not lived up to yeah. what we think is the liberating power of the gospel. So here I am, an immigrant, Latina, Nicaraguan uh, woman, pastor, and co-pastoring with a white, educated male from the South. And this is our, our way of embodying solidarity and reconciliation. And we hope that what happens at the toppest and highest levels of leadership is going to trickle down for equity and inclusion and, and reconciliation. We want it to be an ongoing process of always reimagining so that we don't get stuck in those paradigms of, well, this is how we've always done it. We're trying to imagine a new place, a beautiful place that we know will bring fragments of past tragedies and past trauma of what whiteness has done to all of us because racism means that nobody is free yeah bobby isn't free you're not free i'm not free yeah same way with sexism and so we're trying to reimagine a multi-ethnic church that has the compassion of christ that is loving and just and merciful uh in this season so we started meeting back in in january for the first time as a group and then COVID hit and then there's no manual phil there is yeah, no manual yeah, yeah. for what this looks like but um we are trying to follow that border crossing god and the, that boundary breaking spirit and to break any and all paradigms of we ha what we have brought to what church should be and reimagine reimagine with a new paradigm wow wow that, that that's amazing um one last question mm -hmm. We talk about racial reconciliation, racial solidarity work, but you and I, and I understand what you're talking about, but for those who may not and may get tripped mm -hmm. up, we talk about yeah. whiteness. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by whiteness and why is it important to understand whiteness in this work that you do? You've already mm -hmm. kind of unpacked it throughout, but if you can put it in a yes. nutshell, what do you mean when you say whiteness? Because yeah. someone may be saying, listening and saying, well, she's she keeps talking about me. I'm right. bad. You know, I'm making her. How would you respond to that person to help them understand what you're saying? Yes, that is such a great question. This is where I believe that if we don't explain the terms well and we don't define what we're talking about, yeah. it's a conversation ender and not a conversation starter. And then it limits reconciliation or limits transformation. When I talk about whiteness, I'm not talking about white people. I'm talking about a system mm -hmm. that has uh, that has given um, uh, the white <laughs> constructed race more advantage and supremacy you know of that um when we say that race when we say that racism is prejudice plus power that's a very simple definition mm -hmm. and we can start there and say racism is prejudice plus power i would add that it's male prejudice plus power the system of whiteness has deformed all of us has infected every sphere of society and so it gives a and it gives privilege and it gives and it benefits those that seem to be melanated differently on the outside 
more advantage when we walk into a room than you and I. I'm married to a white male. And I say, you know, my husband lives in a system of whiteness and a system, a racist system that when he enters into a room, it gives him more yep. advantage than if I were to walk into the room. And so whiteness in the church has affected children's ministry, has affected how we disciple our children, has affected who has power, who has authority, who's in charge of the budget, has affected and whiteness has dominated because earlier you said, and I know those churches that look multi-ethnic on the outside, but the in, on the inside, who's in charge of the money? Mm -hmm. Who's in charge of the budget? Who gets to call the shots? Who makes the decisions, right? Is it women? Are there women of color? Are there men of color at the table? And so that's, that's what we're trying to unpack and not operate under whiteness. So that means that Bobby is going to have to lay down some things, going to have to lay down some privilege at times in order to be able to even amplify my voice. Mm -hmm. And what does it look like for a white person and a person of color to not operate under whiteness. It comes in small ways and in big systemic ways. And I'm constantly unpacking because I've been, you and I have internalized our oppression yes, too. We're constantly yes. saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing that. That's my own internalized oppression. Yes. In my mind, in the smallest of ways, you know, do we defer to the white male? Yeah. Yeah. In the room to call the shots. And so we intentionally, Bobby and I, we intentionally say, okay, you're going to drive. When, you, when we enter into this room, you're going to lead that meeting. It completely destabilizes whiteness. Yep. When we enter into a room, Bobby and I, a white male, me, and I start the conversation, I'm leading the conversation. Yep. It does something, right? It yep. destabilizes and because imagination gets jarred all yep. of a sudden. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're finding in the small ways, like who starts a conversation and who leads a conversation in a room and also in the big systemic ways of who's going to be on our board and who's going to be on the elder board. Yeah. Because all of that is going to not only reimagine what church looks like, but re-disciple a new generation of, of children, hopefully, that are not being deformed by whiteness. Are white children included? Yeah, absolutely. White children have deformed the Imago Dei in all of us. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that makes sense. It, it makes perfect okay. sense. I, I think people can unpack that and, and process it um, well. Man, we, we could go on and on. Um, I know it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm still sitting on that phrase you use, hermano, hermano de leche. Hermano de leche. That's Her, a Nicaraguan hermano saying. Hermano de leche. I'm still <laughs> sitting hermano on that Hermano de leche. One. <laughs> My milk brother. <laughs> um, thank you so much for who you are, for mm. your voice, your boldness. Um, please do not shrink. Hmm. Thank you. Do Phil. not shrink. Um, you would do a disservice to the kingdom if you allowed yourself mm. to shrink. Such a good brother you are. <laughs> I think your voice is important. Mm. Um, not just for women. I think your voice is important for the kingdom. Period. Mm. Mm -hmm. Period. Thank right. you. So I, I, am, I am grateful that you took the time to 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 share with us. Um, incredible insight and um, I'll have you back if you come back I'll have you back again I, I know you do you, you you don't just say Phil that you, God makes space for women you show me <laughs> and you make space for me and I've preached at your church you know more than half a dozen times and I know I know that you are a true ally as a brother and I thank you for that thank you for being you thank you thank you for being you because we need those brothers those male allies that uh, amplify those voices and we can show the world what it looks like for 
women who are equally powerful to our brothers, what it looks like to lead together, that we're not trying to take anything away from each other. Yeah. And, and I know you've said this before. I want to amplify the voices of women, not the ex at the expense of my brothers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's something else that whiteness has done to us. Yeah. And so I'm grateful for your voice and yeah. for the way that you have made room for your sisters, including myself. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Love you, right. friend. Love you too. Once again, I want to thank my special guest, Pastor Inez McBride, for her time, her wisdom, and rich conversation today on Intersections with Phil Allen. Before I go, let me remind you about my documentary short film, Open Wounds, available right now for viewing by going to philallenjr.com forward slash open wounds and be on the lookout for my book, Open Wounds, which is set to be released in February 2021. Thank you for meeting me at intersections.